Hello and welcome to Lifetimes of Learning, a production at the Buddhist Discussion Centre Australia. In our podcast series, we'll be discussing the teachings and principles of Buddha Dharma, which is just as relevant today as they were 2,600 years ago. In this podcast, we will cover the chapter 4 of the book titled Bringing Wisdom to Life authored by Anita Carter and Frank Carter, published by Tableau Publishing in 2018, copyright held by Buddhist Discussion Centre Upware Limited. Whether you are on the meditation cushion or on your way to work, we invite you to bring your mind inside and listen to the teachings of the Buddha. Chapter 4. Morality As we listen to the teachings given by the Buddha in many instances, we recognize that to really follow these teachings means we will change something in our lives. We have to change either our attitude or our behavior or both. It means we need to follow the path the Buddha has given us. Instead of our old habits, which are familiar territory to us, Recognizing the need to change and being willing to change support our ability to reach our goal of being happier and free from suffering. Having found something that can help us become happier, we don't want to waste that new learning like it is just another thing or minor consequence. We need to support the new understanding so it doesn't falter before it gets established in our behavior. We have to nourish it and tend it as if it were a small, beautiful plant starting to grow in the garden of our mind. Don't support the old weed which is causing the problems. The Buddha's path is described as having three major components. These are virtue, concentration and wisdom. These three go together supporting each other as a path of training. This training enables a person to recognize the cause of suffering in their own lives and then overcome them as a means to becoming stable and happy and ultimately to do what the Buddha did to become fully enlightened. When we read or hear about what people do in their life to improve their happiness, they don't usually mention virtue or concentration or wisdom. They don't say, I'm practicing generosity to reduce my stinginess, or I decided to refrain from slandering others. They say something like, we're planning to move into our new house next year, or we're going to Disneyland for our holidays, or something like that. When we read or hear about what people do in their life to improve their health or long life, They don't say, I'm focusing on how I can keep the five precepts better, or I'm learning how being kind to others makes many causes for health and long life. They don't say that. What they generally say is something like, I'm planning to lose three kilos on my new diet, or I'm going to take up running to reduce my stress. The strategies of dieting or taking up running come from seeing the situation only in conventional reality terms. It's not to say these things are not worthwhile. However, 
such a viewpoint does not take into account the way things work from the ultimate understanding, the way the Buddha taught that the world really works. Buddha taught about cause and effect, the law of karma. From this viewpoint, our true well-being and our path to becoming happy comes about from the development of wholesome minds and actions. This is the basis of all Buddhist morality. Morality restrains the defilements in their coarse form. They outflow in unwholesome actions. Concentration removes their more refined manifestation as destructive and restless thoughts, and wisdom eradicates their subtle latent tendencies. From Buddha's understanding and experience, where morality has been strongly practiced and developed, it becomes a very clear and powerful level of mind. The Buddha advises us to train our minds and actions so that we keep the five precepts of no killing, no lying, no intoxicants which cloud the mind, no sexual misconduct, and no stealing, with understanding. The Buddha recognized that some negative actions are more powerful than others. They are more powerful in the sense that they produce more powerful karmic results. He perceived that the five negative actions of killing, lying, taking intoxicants, sexual misconduct, and stealing produce the most potent negative karma. Or most concentrated negative karma for ourselves to inherit in our future. Most people naturally tend to be able to keep some precepts better than others. That's pretty normal for persons when they start practicing Buddhism. Some of the precepts make sense straight away, so the person can easily commit to keeping those precepts. However, keeping each of the five precepts creates its own powerful karmic effect. Not just the ones that seem on the surface to make sense. Whatever you find in this book to implement in your own life, at the very least, please decide to keep these precepts. To refrain from killing living beings. Life is dear to all, and all tremble at punishment. All fear death and value life. Hence. We should abstain from taking a life which we ourselves cannot give. Going back to first principle of Buddhism, we understand that whatever we do to others with intention makes the karma or sows the seed for us to experience this same thing at some later date. We change our behavior by having the intention to not kill. It is a very simple change. With profound results, we see others beings as doing what we are doing, surviving. They also have families. They do not know that they are causing us discomfort or harm. In the case of mosquito, for example, it is their nature or karma that they need to drink blood to survive. So instead of becoming angry or annoyed by them, we look out for them. When we see a spider or mouse in our house, we catch them and release them outside. We can get mouse traps that do not kill. We sweep ants up and take them outside. 
We use talcum powder to prevent ants coming in. We keep our kitchen clean and free from most food scraps and spillages. Even then, we might have an ongoing job of watching where the ants are coming in and blocking the holes. We can do things to prevent mosquito biting us, such as by wearing repellent insect sprays, by making sure our in our fly screens are secure, or by using a mosquito net. If we walk in a garden often, we will kill beings such as ants as we walk. It is frequently unavoidable, as we do not even see them. In this case, we have no intention to kill the beings. It is the intention which creates karma. We live in a very fortunate place. We do not have to kill to eat meat. Meat is available to us in the supermarket. Many persons find this a difficult concept to accept, that many Buddhists eat meat, yet they practice no killing. We see the two actions: eating meat. And killing as two different things. Many beings are killed to grow vegetables, grains, and other crops. Fruit that we buy in supermarket, insecticides are sprayed on the vegetables. For example, we cannot avoid the fact that for us to have this food, many beings are killed. It is the nature of this world. Just as every minute we walk, many microscopic beings die. Every time we clean, many beings die. Every time we wash ourselves, many beings die on our body. It has been reported that 21% of the world's insecticides are used in the production of cotton. Silkworms that make silk are killed when the crop is harvested. Many types of animals are killed for their skins to be used for clothing, apparels, and furniture. It is the nature of our existence that beings die in our process of living. I understand this, yet I have no intention to kill these beings. When I clean my house, my intention is to maintain healthy living conditions for myself and my family or friends who live or visit here. When I mow the lawn, my intention is to keep our garden well maintained and safe. If meat is available. And I do not have to kill for it. I will eat it. If it were not available, I would not kill for it, or ask someone else to kill for me. For some persons, karmically, they may need to eat meat to maintain their health and strength. Buddhism is not a religion on food. It is a way to end our suffering through calming the mind and seeing things as they really are. To refrain from lying, Buddhist practice is all about coming to the truth about ourselves and the processes of our life, seeing within our own mind how we create happiness and unhappiness, and then being able to correct our errors and negative mind states. Progress on the Buddhist path is to do with us waking up to the truth of the way we really are. The act of lying, however, is an act of distorting truth or distorting the reality in a way which suits the person lying. The lying itself creates karmic causes for difficulties or obstacles to recognizing 
or receiving the truth in the future. Either people like to lie to them, or they get poor information about things they wish to know, or if they are told the correct information, they will tend to not believe it, discount it, or mistake what they heard. Even in a worldly sense, it is important to find out the truth about things. It is a common occurrence to find that a person has believed we said something, but it wasn't what we actually said. Quite frequently, we find out we have acted on some incorrect information about something, and so we have wasted a lot of time, or bought something we didn't need. Or went somewhere to meet someone and got the time or place wrong, and so on. It happens to us regularly. These types of examples of misinformation we get are caused by us having given out misinformation or lies to others in the past. For a person who is trying to understand the truth and intending to create good courses towards that for learning and becoming happier. It is a necessity to keep the precept to not lie. Not lying creates the karma for us to understand ourselves, others, and the world we live in better. By being truthful, we are creating the karma to come to a clearer view. When we hear or read something, how does our mind interpret that information? It is clear we all interpret it differently. We usually extract a different meaning and value from the same data, and this gives us our understanding. However, this understanding is usually highly subjective. Two people hear the same statement, but come to a different position, even to the extent that they could argue with each other about what they heard and what it means. This is not unusual or abnormal. However, this subjectivity indicates the unreliability and untrustworthiness of our processes of interpreting and understanding information about our world. How confident can we be in our understanding? One of the factors that create our subjectivity. As a receiver of information, is how well we have kept the precept to refrain from lying in the past, and how well we keep it now. Also, we need to consider that the information we are interpreting is not only through our hearing and seeing; we are interpreting our own mind and our mental objects, such as thoughts, memories. Feelings and so on, in the same way as we distort the information about the world outside of ourselves, we are also equally distorting the information about our internal world. If we are trying to understand ourselves and see things clearly, it will never happen unless we build very powerful good karma of maintaining truthfulness. By keeping the precept to not lie at all times, having read that information, you may decide you really do wish to practice that precept, to refrain from lying. You may think it is important enough that you want to change your speech so you, you no longer lie at all. 
for any reason. Practically, if you don't take a position like that, which is uncompromising, you generally don't won't succeed. We already know it can be difficult to give up an old bad behavior because of its habitual nature. So it's not much use applying the new behavior half-heartedly. This would be planning to fail because you are not using enough mental willpower or energy to overcome the energy of the old behavior. It is like saying, "I'll give up smoking," but then saying, "I'll just have an occasional cigarette." That won't work. And it means our mind has not understood the purpose of morality. Decide to give up lying completely with happiness. To refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind, there is a generally unexamined postulate in our contemporary Western culture that says, if we enjoy doing something, it must be good for us. Intoxicants are a prime example of this. The difficulty is we don't have a social or cultural understanding which identifies that morality is the foremost foundation of a healthy mind. The precept of no intoxicant does not include medications taken on medical advice or prescribed by a doctor. It does not include alcohol in cooking. Which is evaporated off. It does include alcohol and such things as recreational drugs and hard drugs, all of which affect consciousness detrimentally. A typical question often asked by people when they first hear about the precept to refrain from intoxicants goes along the lines of, "Isn't it okay to drink a little occasionally?" Such as at a social function, it is true a small amount of alcohol may not have much of an effect on our consciousness, but to have this view means that there is an underlying belief that the potential harm of taking intoxicant is related to the amount consumed, and that there is nothing of consequence beyond that. We have to look at it from a different perspective. To understand if there are other aspects of potential risk, for our mind to have an authentic, stable foundation, there needs to be clarity of what constitutes wholesome thought, and what constitutes unwholesome thought, and what is wholesome action, and what is unwholesome action. It is wholesome to have a commitment to developing a clean, clear mind. A mind that is free from defilements of every type, and free from intoxicants of every type. Actually, this starts with intoxicants such as alcohol and drugs. But as our mind becomes brighter, we may see that our minds get tangled up in many other types of intoxicants. Our untrained mind is intoxicated at the most basic level by merely sensation. Sensation alone, no matter what type, it's enough for our mind to follow and grab. We only need to sit quietly with eyes closed for a little while to see how our mind whirls from one sensation to another. 
for no purpose whatsoever, except the thirst for consuming experience, a bit like Pavlov's dog, except we weren't trained to become like this. We were born with this type of mental salivation. Intoxicants outside ourselves, we contact via our five senses. Intoxicants from our internal dialogue, intoxicants associated with memories and feelings. We take too much notice of things which are unimportant and consequently can't see what is actually important. We are frequently living in a distracted, fragmented state, lost in our intoxication. The various intoxicants we may consume and our capacity to be intoxicated produce mental dullness, mental stupidity, mental noise. This impenetrable fog limits and deteriorates our mental environment leaving little scope for true dharma light. Do we really believe that using intoxicants will support us to become bright, clear and peaceful? The path to real well-being and awakening depends on us cleaning our mind, purifying our mind. Intoxicants put the cloud straight back on the surface we are trying to clean. If we wish to improve, we must value the small gains we make. We must use whatever factors leading to improvement we can and have a commitment to following a set of behaviours that are consistent with this. When our mind has this commitment, that is right view. Such commitment and determination itself brightens and cleans our mind simply because it is wholesome. Simply recollecting the precepts brightens our mind. Merely the thought of keeping the precept to refrain from intoxicants blesses us. If we pay attention and respect keeping our mind free from intoxicants, gradually it will happen for real. We will be making the right courses to reduce all forms of intoxication to refrain from sexual misconduct. The precept of no sexual misconduct includes such things as no adultery and also not using your sexuality to manipulate another person. Close relationships can seem and are very complex sets of changing interpersonal conditions. Our parents, our brothers and sisters, our lovers, our wives, our children, our friends, our workmates are central to our lives and underpin our existence. So how do we look after our relationships well? To begin with, it would be better to say, how do we look after our relationships wisely? Relationships are based on karma. That can be a relationship with anything relationship with money, relationship with music, relationships with physical objects such as cars, relationship with government, and relationships with people. They are all the same in the sense that they all arise from karma, causes made in our past. 
precepts are governors of karma. They prevent us making the worst types of negative karma. They are also indicators of what we most need to look after wisely for our lives to be happy and safe. All five precepts help us have good relationships with other living beings. All five precepts stop us from making really bad present and future relationships with other living beings. Breaking the precept of sexual misconduct makes karma for breaking our relationships, whether our partner found out we were unfaithful or not, whether it happens to our present relationship or it happens in a future relationship with someone we haven't even met yet, whether we see it coming or not. The causes of staying together harmoniously are white entered. When we meet someone who we feel a strong connection with, that is karma from the past. As we spend time together, enjoy each other's company, share of our life with them, our karma is being used up. Gradually, the sense of freshness, aliveness, intimacy begins to weaken. Gradually, our wish to spend our time with each other becomes less and we find we are happy to spend more time doing things apart. The good karma which brought us together is now weaker. This is the life cycle of relationships. We are really experiencing our karma when we meet the other person. The way we view the other person was always coming from the karma we had with them and from the karma we made together during our relationship. Therefore, if we value our relationships, if we appreciate them, we need to nourish them, to renew them, to rebuild them every time we meet the other person. From our side, we take responsibility for the well-being of our relationships. Even if the other person doesn't know this, even they don't have this understanding, we make the causes from our side to frequently replenish the karma. We live in the way we wish our relationships could be. If we think it doesn't matter, it isn't that important to really pay attention to our relationship. In the future, we will meet people who think like that when they meet us. We won't have good friends, good relationships, good partners. We won't experience lasting, caring relationships. Then we start to mistrust people, to resent people, to see more and more enemies appearing in our world. There is a saying in Buddhism that friends become enemies, enemies become friends. This describes the life cycle of relationship that occur based on not understanding how karma works and consequently not keeping precepts of safe conduct. These are some aspects of the precept of refraining from sexual misconduct. To refrain from stealing. The effect of keeping precept is profound. The Buddha said they are the basis of our minds being able to improve and develop. They are the basis for our 
true well-being. A person who keeps five precepts is making karma for their future rebirth as a human or better. Keeping five precepts cleans our coarse material body and our fine material body, our chakra system, our life force, our mind. Keeping the precept to not steal includes not taking anything which is not freely given to us. Although it may appear that this relates to taking material things from others, we also considered it to include, for example, not trying to overhear a person's private conversation with someone else, not illegally avoiding paying taxes which should be paid, or not att- attending to our personal or private matters during the time we are paid to be working. At a subtler level, for example, sometimes we choose to involve ourselves and get ourselves churned up about things that are really none of our business. In some instances, this could be viewed as stealing. We have to consider what our motive is for getting involved to see if we are stealing or not. It's all the easier to break a precept if we get too close to the edge. If we keep alcohol in the house, it is much easier to break the precept than if we have to go out to buy some, which means to protect ourselves, we need to recognize and avoid the steps and the situations that lead up to us breaking the precept. For example, in the case of stealing, what comes before stealing is maybe we see something at home we really like, so we hide it so others can't have it. We hide a chocolate biscuit so no one else can eat it before us. What comes before hiding is maybe we avoid telling our family members we just bought chocolate ice cream so there's a good chance no one will notice. Sure, it's not stealing, but it's on the way to making the causes for stealing. The next step could be just looking around to see who's watching when you put the ice creams in the fridge. Maybe turn your back so nobody sees as you put them in the freezer. The next step away is to just want something someone else has. I would really like some of that. The next step away could be thinking they should share that with me rather than eating it all themselves. These reducing steps are like ripples further out on the same pond. They are one step away from stealing, two, three, four steps away from stealing. We learn to guard our actions like that. We train in avoiding actions which are less and less severe variations of wanting something that someone else has. Then we can start going the other way, to honor others' property, to protect others' property, and to freely give to others. If someone loses something, help them find it. If you find something someone else has lost, do your best to return it. Make sure you are well away from eavesdropping on others' conversation when you know they are private and don't open emails and letters addressed to others. The five precepts maintain powerful causes 
for us to experience a safe and secure set of living conditions, both now and in the future, which are harmless to others and peaceful for ourselves. It is our occupational health and safety guidelines for living. This concludes Chapter Four of the book titled "Bringing Wisdom to Life." Thank you for listening to our Lifetimes of Learning podcast. To listen to other chapters of this book and our other recordings, please go to our website www.bdcu.org.au and click on Dharma Teachings. Or you can go to our online World Buddhist Radio station from our website by clicking on Buddhist Radio. May you be well and happy. May all beings be well and happy.